Hey, everyone out there at ASAP Now, and thanks again for joining us here at ASAP Nowcast, the podcast for ASAP Now. So you know the shtick now. I'm Amy Ho. I'm an ER doctor and also the ASAP Now assistant editor who is honored to be your host of this podcast. Now, every episode of the podcast, we feature a couple things. One, we feature something from the magazine just to get you a little taster of what's in your inbox already. And two, we feature something unique to the podcast. It is December, so closing out the year, we're taking it back to the classics. So this episode, we will feature for you from the magazine a really interesting case report. We don't really do case reports a whole lot, but this one I thought was really excellent because not only does it feature a disease that is on every test I've ever taken, but have never actually seen in real life. But it also features a unique presentation of that disease. Now, I will let Dr. Justin Resendez from Case Western tell you more about that, and you can also check it out in the magazine this month. Now, December is also the month of giving. So we're going to follow that case report with another segment on being a patient with a quite well-known name in emergency medicine, Dr. Aileen Gragosian, who has a seriously incredible story on giving. For those of you that haven't heard her story, she was the recipient of a heart transplant during her training, no less, and she's on this episode talking about her experience on the other side of medicine. Now with that, we'll go ahead and jump right in. Hey everyone at ASAP Now, I'm super pleased today to be joined by Dr. Justin Resendez, Chief Resident at Case Western Reserve and Metro Health to introduce a really cool case actually from the magazine. And I thought this case was really interesting, A, because it was a very neat presentation, like it wouldn't have crossed my differential, and also because it's one of those buzzword diagnoses that we always have on tests, but I was just telling Justin, I have actually never seen in real life. So Justin, I'm super excited to jump right in. I wanna say first, thank you for taking the time to join us on this. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me come out. So, Justin, tell me about the case. So, it was definitely not what I was expecting at all either. Um, Essentially, it was just a 26-year-old gentleman um, who came in essentially for acute on chronic abdominal pain with known previously diagnosed proctitis. Um, Did have a history of HIV as well. Um, He's actually at a hospital down the street from us where we diagnosed him at had already kind of had a uh, presentation consistent with proctitis, uh, pain with defecation, discharge, had been swabbed for gonorrhea and chlamydia at that time, didn't have those results back yet, had labs drawn. The only thing kind of odd in his labs is he had like a very mild transaminitis. Um, They actually scanned him as well, Um, obviously showed perirectal inflammation concerning for proctitis. Um, gave him ceftriaxone and doxine, kind of sent him on his way. Uh, he came in to us because he was having worsening pain. Honestly, he was having more of like an obstructive type symptom, really hadn't been able to have a bowel mo- movement for a while due, due to pain, pain. having kind of abdominal pain out of proportion to what I would have expected for just proctitis, which is the reason we went ahead and rescanned him again. Um, otherwise, uh, everything on him came back pretty good. His vitals were great. Labs were all fine. That transaminitis had actually resolved by the time that we had seen him. 
And then I got a call from the radiology resident um, whose first question was, are you sure that this patient is a male? <laughs> Which was a little <laughs> weird to me. Um, you could definitely see all of his anatomy on the scan. So uh, I said, yes. And he goes, okay. Um, I, I have to ask because the CT scan is concerning for like perihepatitis that would be consistent like Fitzhugh Curtis and asked me kind of what his presentation was. I was like, well, he was coming in with like pretty legitimate proctitis probably from an STD. He was like, okay, let me send it to like our body or our uh, abdomen specialist. I'll call you back when I let you know. And he kind of prelimmed the report. And then my attending ran out at the same time. I was like, did you see the report on that? And I was like, uh, yeah, <laughs> I just talked to him about it. Um, and then uh, went back in the room and kind of examined him again. I really hadn't appreciated a ton of right upper quadrant pain initially. He was just kind of having diffuse pain everywhere. But he was having pretty legitimate right upper quadrant pain. Um and then we pretty much were trying to just sort out what we were going to do with him at that point. He was in quite a bit of pain requiring uh, narcotics at that point. So we already kind of decided that we were going to admit him for kind of pain control um, regardless. And then we got this result. We were trying to sort out kind of what we were going to do with him, particularly how to like treat him at this point. Um, and I immediately just got on PubMed and just started trying to search for any case reports of this and realized there was only like a handful of them that I could find which made treating him difficult. Um, and there really wasn't a lot of articles on kind of what the appropriate, at least inpatient antibiotic course for him should have been. So we essentially just kind of put him on a PID type regimen with cefoxetin and uh, doxycycline. And immediately, of course, our ED pharmacists also ran into our, we were in kind of like the moderate acuity side of the um, ED at that point. He came in and was like, what are you treating and what are you doing? And I was like, well, <laughs> we have this case and he was like i don't know what that is so go ahead and do what you want to do we'll figure it out later so the guy ended up actually admitted um kept for like two days two or three days um obviously the reason we admitted him is because there was a handful of these cases that obviously if their pain doesn't significantly improve they actually need to go in laparoscopically and kind of have a lysis of adhesion so we admitted him kind of with expected course of if he doesn't get better, he may need a surgical consult for that. Um, ended up doing okay, and they ended up discharging him with about two weeks of doxycycline. Unfortunately, the guy was lost yeah. to follow-up, so. Oh, man. I feel like it's always how these cases end up. Like, oh, we would love to have follow-up, but they disappeared into the wind. This is such a cool case. So, again, like, I've actually never seen Fitzhugh Curtis present in the emergency department, and much less ever seen it in a male so kind of on your chart review or your, your literature review, how often did you find that there was Fitzhugh Curtis in men, like especially after getting treated before? It was honestly tough to even find. Like there is nothing outside of just random case reports. There's no like epidemiological studies for it. Um, honestly, I only really found like 11 legitimate case reports, like starting I think as early as like 1990. There's a few more as of like recently in like the mid to late 2000s, which makes me think that I'm not sure whether we're seeing like an increased incidence of it or whether we're just getting with, we're scanning more people to find more stuff and we're finding it. But as far as like, exactly what the uh, like incidents or prevalences of this it's it's tough to tell because i 
like I said, there's nothing but just like a handful of case reports of this. I, I wish I had a good answer for that, but it's tough to tell whether this is something that exists and we just don't find it that much because we don't go looking for it because we didn't know it existed, or whether this is something that is just exceedingly, exceedingly, exceedingly rare. Yeah, because Fitzhugh Curse is already fairly rare. So to find it, you know, even in an atypical presentation is even more exceedingly rare. And and I kind of, you know, wondered for this particular patient, I was wondering, like, was there any correlation, do you guys think, or that infectious disease thought or just that you see on literature review about it being more likely because he had HIV? Yeah, so I was actually reading a lot of the uh, ID notes afterward, um, and they had mentioned that as well. And going back in a lot uh, more than half of the cases that I had seen, particularly for men that have uh, that develop Fitzhugh Curtis, oftentimes have HIV. Um, and a lot of times it was people who had poorly controlled HIV, low CD4 counts, um, viral loads. Um, so, I mean, it, like I said, it, there's not a handful of cases, so it's tough to really like say for sure. But, I mean, it definitely seems like it's trending that way, that people are immunocompromised are at increased risk of developing it. Yeah, and, and kind of for this particular case... Did you guys have any thoughts beside Fitzhugh Curtis? Like, I, I kind of agree with you. It all packages well into a bow when it when once we're like, oh, this is Fitzhugh Curtis, it all makes sense. But what else is on your differential once you guys had seen these adhesions on the CT? We honestly had no other idea. Like, at first we were talking about does this guy have, like, free fluid? Had he, like, perforated his proctitis at some point? But as far as I, I don't really know a lot of other pathologies that can cause this kind of perihepatitis of sides of like peritonitis, um, kind of free fluid, things like that. But I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. Yeah. And did, and they ended up um, culturing it, right? Correct. Yeah. We sent him off for we recultured him as well. He ended up um, growing chlamydia. Yeah. I feel like that's kind of a slam dunk for uh, for also proving that it's it's most likely to be Fitzhugh Curtis. Now, now, um, again, super interesting presentation, and I feel like I haven't taken a test where Fitzhugh Curtis wasn't at least one of the multiple choice answers on there yet. What are some takeaways for EM docs to not miss this sort of presentation? Like, I feel like, uh, you know, CT everything <laughs> is in a way where I'm like, uh, you know, what else would we have done? But, you know, obviously not what we want to um consider <laughs> in the grander scheme of things. What are some takeaways? Yeah, I mean, exactly. It's, I mean, I feel like it all comes down to like the bounce back case. Like this is the person that came, was seen for proctitis beforehand and now is coming back with like worsening pain, kind of out of proportion of what you would have thought. Um, and it's weird because I, I had this case as an intern and then all of a sudden, I mean, I, I kind of fell off my radar for a while and then all of a sudden monkeypox came back up and we were seeing a lot of it in Cleveland and it was a lot of similar um, demographic of patient coming in with kind of proctitis, chlamydial gonorrhea, but also having kind of diffuse spread of like perianal monkeypox. And I remember a handful of them, I did a way more thorough abdominal exam and CT'd two of them in particular and called the radiology resident. I was like, hey, like, just hear me out. Don't... This, I've seen this before. Uh, just take a look at the liver capsule and just let me know what you think. And, of course, they all came back fine. They were like, no, we don't see anything like concerning at all. But, yeah, it's it's kind of just one of those things now that if you have someone with proctitis who's coming back with this worsening abdominal pain that you can't explain by just proctitis, it's definitely something to consider and think about. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think you touch on a couple really interesting things. I think one is, 
you know, be wary of the comeback patients because they usually came back for a reason. And then two is I think um, this kind of emphasizes why there's certain vulnerable or special populations. We also need to just be attuned to, um, you know, atypical presentations on, which I feel like is getting more, um, more mantra in emergency medicine, but still like, I think that's a, that's a pretty important takeaway as well from everything you just said. Well, Justin, I want to say thank you again for submitting this case. I thought it was a super interesting one. And thanks for coming on and chatting about it. And you guys can all check it out in the magazine as well. This month, it is called Case Report Fitzhugh Curtis Syndrome in a Male with HIV. Thanks again, everyone. Thanks so much. Hey everyone at Ace Up Nowcast, I am super pleased to be sitting here today with Dr. Aline Gregosian. Uh, she is probably a name you've seen before and probably heard bits of her story already because it is an incredible one. So she's an emergency medicine doctor and also critical care fellow at Mount Sinai. Um, so first, Aline, I just want to say thank you so much for just making the time to join us. Thank you for having me. I love doing these things. Yeah, so I alluded to this a little bit. So over the years, um, I have seen you talk about a really crazy story <laughs> that I know is like the story of your life for the past few years um, of how you basically went from being mild manner ER resident to ICU patient. So tell us about that. Sure. So oh, now it's been like three and a half years, almost four years ago, but Back when I was a third year ER resident, I was actually towards the end of my residency. So this was like December-ish, November, December-ish of 2018. I was supposed to be graduating in 2019 and actually starting my critical care fellowship at Mount Sinai just in about six months. I was doing really well. Uh, I like to tell people I was at like the peak of my life. Like I was 30 years old and I was so excited for the future. I was living in Philadelphia, getting ready for my move to New York City for my fellowship you know, healthy. I had honestly barely ever been to the doctor myself, uh, as yeah. you know, as it, as it goes in residency. <laughs> and um, right around November-ish, I started having what I thought at that time was probably a cold. You know, we all have colds here and there, especially when we're ER residents. I didn't think much of it, but after this cold, this like cough persisted for a few weeks. Uh, again, like I was actually just explaining the story today to one of uh, our nurses and she was just like couldn't believe it. But I specifically remember like I was feeling sick-ish, but not sick to the point where like I was calling out, like I was still going out. In fact, I have a picture from like, you know, a few days before everything happened to me where I went out drinking with my friends and I, I felt I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't necessarily like really feeling really good, but I wasn't feeling super sick either. So I remember like I went out with my friends, uh, you know, I was at, was working and it just so happened that that same, that block, I was on my ICU rotation. So I was a, like the senior ICU resident that particular night when I went in and this cough had persisted, but like had gotten progressively worse in those last couple of days right before, you know, and I'll explain what happened. The, the, I went to the ICU to start my shift and one of my attendings who's actually, uh, you know, I love her to death. She's actually one of my mentors and she was EM critical care. And she just kept telling me like something's a little bit off with you. Um, she said like, I'm stopping in between sentences to take a breath. She said, you just look a little pale. Like something was weird. You know, sometimes we could just tell, yeah. but 
I, I kept brushing it off and I promised her that I would eventually get this checked out and if I felt bad. And even right there and then she actually said, just go down to the ER, like let's get a chest x-ray or something. And I was like, no, like I'm okay. Let me let me just do this 24-hour call. Which <laughs> 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 is like a total resident thing. I was like, let me just do this like 24-hour, yeah. like very intense call in the ICU by myself and then I'll figure it out. So um, I, you know, I, I did my shift and I remember at that time, which I'm sure a lot of us do as residents, like I would always take the stairs up and down the the hospital just because it was like my only workout for like the day when I was on call. But that day, like I just couldn't. Like I remember that was one other thing that I remember. I was really tired and like I like there was a code on the floors that we had to respond to. And like I actually took the elevator, which like I rarely used to do. Um, So it was just weird. And at the end of the night, or I guess like, you know, by the morning, so it was a 24-hour call, I just like mm-hmm. didn't feel good. Um, I think I went home, couldn't really sleep, like so- something was weird, and then something hit me. Like, we always like to say in the emergency department when somebody is like young and healthy, they are going to like go, go, go until they just suddenly crash, which I feel like that yeah. was where I just crashed. So I, I remember feeling a hundred times worse than I did the two days before and even the night before. And decided to finally go to the back to the ER. So I came off work, went back to the ER, and all my like co-residents and my attendings who had just seen me, like we saw each other at conference. I had seen them the night before at work. They even said like they're like you look way off. Like your lips are blue. Something's weird. Got a chest X-ray done, and um, it showed what we thought at the time was like either pleural effusions or maybe a multifocal pneumonia, which. I'm sure, as you guys know, mm-hmm. when somebody is 30 and young and healthy, rarely do you go straight to heart failure as a diagnosis. You're sometimes like, well, like that looks kind of weird, yeah. but we're not. You know, why would you have heart failure? So long story short, I got admitted to the hospital um, for this workup of this like unspecified shortness of breath, possibly pneumonia, possibly something with the heart, but we're not really sure. So the workup was still mm-hmm. happening and I was I had just gotten admitted. I was on the floors and then. Honestly, the last thing I remember from this particular night, it was like right, it was actually right before Christmas. So it was like Christmas Eve-ish or the day before that. I suddenly just got really like diaphoretic, nauseous. And I remember I looked up at my heart rate and what, what, you know, had been in like the 120s, 130s, 140s when I got in uh, was suddenly down to like 30. So, and that is the last thing I remember was that number. And I just felt sick. And I think they had called a rapid response. I had crashed, apparently, I mean, again, I don't remember it, but this is like my my friends explaining this to me because they're the ones who took care of me. It was my like, like yeah. EM and IM co-residents. They said, you know, I wasn't looking good. And then, uh, you know, they had to intubate me and I got really, really hypotensive to the point where they could barely feel a pulse. And I ended up, you know, going to the ICU in the meantime, a whole bunch of stuff happened. Like I went to the cath lab and, you know, this whole thing, like within 24, 48 hours, I woke up in the ICU with, you know, I was intubated. Uh, and that's when they kind yeah. of told me your ejection fraction, which like a normal healthy person has one, it's around 60%. Mine was 5%. And I had like fluid, like heart failure in cardiogenic shock. So um, wow. nobody really knew exactly what was going on, but like I had heart failure. And that was basically the beginning of my story. So after that, we got, um, I, I had to get transferred eventually to Penn, which was like the nearest heart transplant center. When I was at Penn, 
I, I had such bad like biventricular failure. They really couldn't even do like mechanical support. So like an impella. So they just had to urgently yeah. list me for a heart transplant. And then I like to tell people like I went from a completely normal athletic healthy 30 year old within three weeks i was a end-stage heart transplant patient like end-stage heart failure heart transplant yeah. patient so it was crazy but and then like that was three and a half years ago and here i am now so <laughs> i never know how to like finish the story but that's basically what happened to me about three and a half years ago I, I mean, you just say so many things that I'm like, yes, like I totally re- relate, right? Like I never took the elevator either. It's like as a resident, yeah, you don't get any exercise, like, and who has time to wait for it? And like, yeah, like you have to be like nearing death to like call out for a shift. So it's like, I so relate to this. And, and but then you had, I mean, unlike most residents, right? Like we, we do finally get sick, whatever we, you know, sleep it off for a couple of days and we come back. But like under, unlike other residents, like you had something incredibly major and, you know, and with almost no foreshadowing, you know, you kind of became this almost like lifelong patient. Like, did that change what your attitude was as a resident or as a fellow? Cause you know, like, I don't want to get into the whole, like, you know, take care of yourselves. That's easier said than done, especially in residency. But, you know, like, did it change your perspective? It does. And I remember, like, I guess there's a few things that go into it. So I like to also tell people, like, okay, so there's, like, acute heart failure and there's chronic. And you have to remember, like, mine was so acute. Like, I remember the day I got a heart transplant, like, I was like, okay, so am I a chronic patient now? Like, like, I didn't even know what I was. (laughs) Like, I was like, I've never been a patient. I'm fine. Like, I have a new heart. So I'm not even a patient. Like, I'm you know, like, I didn't even know what to, yeah. like, qualify. I could barely, like, say the word chronic disease because I had barely been through anything to, to get this. And so I think initially my attitude was kind of like, they actually said I had a very, like, ER doctor attitude, which I thought was hilarious because they were, like, I just kept saying, like, all right, if I need the heart, let me just get it and get out of here. Like, I just, like, I was just looking for, yeah. like, I didn't yeah. even, but I, again, I, A, I think I was probably hypoperfusing to my brain because I, like, had zero ejection fraction. So there was probably a component of, like, I don't remember a lot of what happened, but also I remember being very, like, practical, like, okay, so this is what I've been given there. I can't change anything that happened to me. And I guess like what I need to do to get out of here is this heart transplant. So let me just do it and get out of here. I will say that we eventually found out that I had like this genetic um, cardiomyopathy. So, and, and now there's all these, like, there's all this data showing like, what do we do with it? Like if it's somebody has a genetic predisposition, yeah. like do they have to be on beta blockers their whole life? Do they have to get screened more? Often? Like we don't even know because rarely does this happen. So I remember like at the time I'm like, well, I can't do anything about it because it's this gene that I was born with and I just happened to find out about when I was 30. And like to get out of here, let me just get this heart transplant. I think initially I was also very afraid, but at the same time, like I figured, you know, I, I this sounds very morbid, but I was also like, well, I already basically died once so anything from here on out is my bonus time um which one time I used to I used to say borrow time but somebody told me to like switch it to bonus time so I figured like I've made it this far and the worst (laughs) that could happen already happened and if it happens again then so be it like there's really nothing I can do so that was kind of my 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 attitude towards the whole thing at that time yeah. And has, has that evolved? I mean, cause yeah, I'm with you. Like, so ER doctor to be like, all right, this happened. Like what's the dispo? What's the next step? Like, have you found that just going through this experience has 
change that with either just you or um, how you deal with patients. Like it's, it's actually super interesting to me that you ended up in critical care after having this like hugely dramatic, you know, ICU stay yourself. In fact, what was really funny about it all was that one of the first things I did when I got extubated, like, you know, on like day four of like this crazy, like cardiogenic shock episode, I actually emailed my fellowship program director and I was like, hey, I just want to let you know, like, I'm not doing really well, but like, I still really want to do this ICU fellowship. So again, at that time, like, I was kind of like, I kind of want to be an ICU doctor even more now that like, I have like these things going on. Uh, And I don't regret it at all. I think um, having been in like the ICU patient's shoes, I found it, it, it's hard to call it this, but it's the truth. Like, like not every doctor could, especially not in the ICU, not every doctor is like, oh, I know what it's like to be intubated with like three chest tubes. Or I know what it's like to have A-lines in and, you know, pulled out and replaced and do this. Like, so I feel like it was almost like a blessing to be able to say that with my most critically ill patients, which is what, you know, ER and ICU is all critically ill patients. So I feel like I, I was even more excited to to go on to do what I can. And I remember initially people were like, are you sure? Like, you're going to be very immunocompromised <laughs> after all yeah. of this. And like, can you even go back? And I was like, I don't know. Like, I'm going to go back. Like, I don't care what they say. Like, they're, they're, I'm going to go back and I'm just going to be really cautious. So that was kind of my um, attitude on my career path and nothing has changed. I still find myself in a very weird way grateful for what happened to me because I'm able to use it as an ER ICU doctor. Uh, And in fact, I always tell my co-fellows and people around me like, hey, ask me, like, if you have any questions, just like ask, does it really hurt to like get these things done? Does it really hurt to do this? How much does, is it uncomfortable? Like what's the most uncomfortable thing about being in the ICU? Because I can answer all of those like very easily. So... (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like the, re- the relatability is just crazy that you have, not that we wish anything upon anyone, any of our colleagues, right. But like the utmost health, but you're, you're totally right. Like it's extremely rare, especially in ICU to be able to say as a, as a fairly young doctor, especially that like, Hey, I've experienced this and that's got to give you a lot of, um, you know, credibility. And I think comfort with your patients. Yeah. And I say the same thing. I say like, I don't think every doctor has to go through like Perry code situation to like, you know, be a good doctor. So I don't think it's that. I just think it just gives you this extra perspective that not everybody has. And it's kind of interesting that I have it. Yeah. Aline, your like tenacity on this story, your like confidence on it, like kind of like just this story of how you tell it is super, super, super inspiring. I just have to say that. And, you know, I want to make sure that everyone with um, ASAP now, if uh, they want to learn more, can find you. Can you tell me, uh, yeah, how to how to reach out, your blog, all that sort of stuff? Of course. So um, I, the easiest way to reach out, I have an Instagram, a change of heart blog is the handle. And then I'm also on Twitter, AG underscore uh, EM33. But um, we also have this podcast that I do with one of my really good friends now. He's actually a heart transplant recipient and cardiology fellow. He had more of a chronic issue when he was a child, and then he ended up getting a heart transplant before med school. So we both have very different views, but at the same time, we have very similar views on what it's like mm-hmm. navigating the healthcare system as like a heart transplant recipient slash doctor. Um, so it's called <laughs> both sides of the stethoscope, and that's another way to um, reach out to us. 
That's awesome. Again, I just want to say thank you so much for giving us this time. Like I said, I've been kind of watching your story over the past few years. I've always found it so inspiring. So it's awesome to meet you. And I'm super glad that we got to share your story on ASAP now. Thank you so much for having me. That is it for us this month. Thanks again for tuning in. And as always, huge thank you to both of our guests, Dr. Justin Resendez and Dr. Aileen Gragosian. And we will see everyone next year, which is, of course, next month with some new content for all of you. Be sure in the meantime to check out the December magazine in your mailboxes already. We've got a great feature with Dr. King, the first Asian American ASAP president, a great feature with the infamous Dr. Cass on her new role at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and some clinical features on not only the Fitzhugh Curtis case here, but also antibiotics and appendicitis, as well as much, much more. As always, we are wanting to improve and to hear from you. Tweet us if you have an idea at ASAPNow or feel free to tweet me direct at Amy Faith Ho. We'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback and keep you tuning in with content that you want to read and that you want to listen to. So thanks again, everyone. A Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to everyone at ASAP Now as we go into the new year. We will see you all next time. Bye.